Welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. On today's scripted episode, I'll walk you through the history of the many people who've taken up Captain America's shield over the years, from Steve Rogers to Sam Wilson, and what it says about the state of America when it happens. Here's a fun fact about the first appearance of Captain America in the comics with that famous picture of Cap punching Hitler's lights out on the cover. So it officially landed on sale in December of 1940. Now, if you're a World War II buff, you know why that's a little weird. The US hadn't entered the war yet. Pearl Harbor was actually a full year out. Although Captain America would always be associated with soldiers, the military and World War II in particular, his very first mission featured him going rogue. That was an intentional decision on the part of Cap's creators, writer Joe Simon and artist Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was still a few years away from becoming the comic book rock star he'd become known as, but he already had a reputation in the superhero industry for being a tireless workhorse, capable of churning out a crazy amount of pages in a short amount of time in his signature kinetic muscular style. He didn't care much for politics, he said that many times, but he had very strong feelings about Nazis. He hated them. He was a tough New York kid, the son of Jewish immigrants, and he had no hesitation about rolling up his sleeves to teach any Nazi sympathizers a lesson. It's a good thing, too, because his office was subject to death threats from American Nazi sympathizers after Captain America hit the stands. They got so many death threats that police protection was actually posted at the front door, and the New York City mayor called Kirby to tell him that he was a fan. In Simon and Kirby's mind, Germany was playing their hand smart in the European theater. Captain America was a way for two New Yorkers to have their say as well. It also established something very core to the idea of Captain America, and it's been core ever since. He might be dressed in the flag, but he doesn't blindly follow orders. To Cap's thinking, the highest ideals of America are immutable truths that exist above the orders of politicians and generals. He doesn't march in whatever direction they point. He's got his own internal compass, and he's confident that it's attuned to the American dream. If the government disagrees, that's their problem. There's this famous quote that Cap has in an issue of Spider-Man, actually, that sort of sums it up. He says, and this is a full quote here, doesn't matter what the press says, doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say, doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe, no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Now, in the comics, this is part of why the government is willing to trust Steve Rogers with the super soldier serum. He's a good person, ergo, he can handle the power that comes with that serum, which gets at Marvel's old obsession with power and responsibility. But how many people can really handle that responsibility? How many people should? 
That question has proved to be a frequent and really fruitful subject for the comics to explore over the years as various other figures have had the opportunity to try their hand at carrying the mantle of Captain America. If you've been watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you're familiar with John Walker, the army hero handpicked by the U.S. government as Steve Rogers' successor. Now, this happened in the comics, too, in a 1987 story by Mark Gruenwald. Gruenwald was interested in seeing what the role of Captain America would be if somebody less morally impeachable was Cap, someone for whom patriotism was more of a liability than an asset, and for whom America's highest ideals were more aspirational than inherent. Rogers, in the comics, steps away from the role of Captain America when the government demands he become more of a team player. So, John Walker, a hyper-nationalist Boy Scout who went by Super Patriot at the time, was granted the shield by committee. This was happening to lots of Marvel's legacy characters in the 80s. Uh, Tony Stark's friend James Rhodes was Iron Man and would be for a couple of years. A horse-faced cyborg alien named Better Ray Bill was wielding Thor's hammer at the time. And now a government yes man was Captain America. As Cap, Walker didn't question his orders. He didn't hold the U.S. to a higher standard. And he dutifully marched off in whatever directions the Pentagon told him to. As a sales stunt, this paid off really big for Marvel, actually. Readers liked the new, less scrupulous spin on Captain America. This was at the time when characters like Wolverine and Deadpool and Frank Miller's Batman were getting more popular for their edgy and grim and gritty take on superhero comics. So John Walker let Captain America kind of get in on this same action. There was this cover that features Cap with this grin and he's firing a gun and it set record sales for the series at the time. But Gruenwald had a plan. See, for him, this wasn't about making edgelord Captain America. It was about finding out who Captain America truly is by seeing someone else struggle to live up to the legacy. Gruenwald said he hoped to, and this is a quote from Gruenwald, quote, better define what Captain America the concept is by seeing someone groping, trying to live up to it, trying to grasp all the facets of the concept. Walker was Captain America for almost two years, and during that time, he becomes much more heroic. He, he grows into the big shoes left behind by Steve Rogers. Still, nothing ever changes for long in comics, and eventually Steve Rogers would pick the shield up again at Walker's own request. Walker would get his own slightly more destructible shield and take on a new job as a guy called the US Agent, briefly joining teams like the West Coast Avengers and Forceworks. Now, Steve Rogers would continue as Captain America until the late 2000s, when he was assassinated following the events of the Civil War. Um, several contenders were considered for carrying on Cap's legacy in the comics, but Tony Stark ultimately convinces Bucky to take the job. Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier. Bucky inherits the shield and a slightly modified version of the costume. He carries a gun and a combat knife. He operates a little more like a secret agent than Steve Rogers ever did. It's a tough job, and more than once, Bucky finds himself failing to inspire the sort of courage and loyalty in the public that his predecessor did. At the time, the Avengers were operating outside of the law, and while Bucky joins them as Captain America, he turns down an offer to lead the team. He just doesn't feel like he's got 
had it in him. Now, of course, uh, Steve Rogers did not actually, he didn't stay dead. Uh, he eventually returns. This led to a short time of both he and Bucky operating as Captain America at the same time. Kind of like Miles and Peter both figure out how to share the Spider-Man name. And it's not as confusing as you might think. Their costumes were distinctive. They operated in different ways. Steve is more of an inspiring figurehead and Bucky in the shadows, sort of symbolic of the different ways the U.S. itself operates in the world stage. But eventually, Steve Rogers takes the role of Captain America full-time, again, for a while. To tell the next part of the story, we need to go back a little bit, way back to 1969, when Sam Wilson was introduced into Captain America comics. He was the very first African-American superhero in mainstream comic books, created by Stan Lee and artist Gene Colan. So at the time, Marvel was riding really high on the popularity of Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, and the Incredible Hulk. It was sort of a, a boom season for them. They were seen as a contender to DC Comics, and they were kind of the cool kid on the block. Stan Lee was getting more ambitious with his social commentary. He was criticizing the Vietnam War, and he was supporting the civil rights protests in the comics. But Gene Colan pointed out that it was one thing to say they supported these movements, but if they really wanted to be part of making a difference, they should start including more racial diversity in their lineup. Stanley agreed, and Colan came up with the Falcon. Now, Falcon is kind of a confusing backstory, several confusing backstories. At first, he was a Harlem native, the son of a minister. He became a social worker and then incidentally at some point adopts a pet falcon named Red Wing, who he may or may not have a psychic link to. Uh, in the comics, Sam Wilson thwarts a group of neo-Nazis bent on enslaving indigenous island nations. It's a very long story. Captain America then takes Sam under his own wing and starts training him to be a partner. And then for most of the 70s, Marvel Comics published Captain America's comic series as Captain America and the Falcon. Sam's story started to go through a lot of rewrites over the years. Some stories depicted him as a troubled criminal, reformed over time. In others, he was a lifelong upright community organizer. One story attempted to combine these, saying the Red Skull had only brainwashed Sam into thinking that he used to be a criminal, but that he'd actually always been a good guy. The less time trying to make sense of all of this, the better. Actually, I think the MCU's relatively straightforward origin story of Sam as a military vet with a knack for an experimental wing jetpack was a pretty welcome edit to the story and a really needed one. So in the comics, bad guys suck the super soldier serum out of Steve Rogers, turning him into an old man incapable of handling superhero duties any longer. Rogers hands the shield off to Sam, who officially becomes Captain America, taking over the Captain America title with a brand new aerodynamic suit. Now, what's interesting about this is way back in 1987, when the shield is passed off to John Walker, Sam Wilson is explicitly considered for the job by the U.S. government and the comic itself. When, while this committee is uh, in the shadows trying to decide who to approach about the job, one member of the government committee muses about Sam for Captain America before he says in the comic, quote, I doubt the country is ready for a black Captain America, and so they don't do it. They go with Walker instead. Now, it's hard to know whether this sentiment was supposed to show just how backwards and racist the government was, or whether it kind of betrays Marvel Comics' own cold feet about the idea. It might be a little bit of both. And uh, now it's time to see just how much has changed since that. In Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Sam Wilson finally consents to Steve Rogers' wishes that he become the new Captain America, whether the country is ready for it or not. Because kind of like in the 40s, 
when Cap went to Germany to punch Hitler out well before the U.S. entered the war, Captain America is often a few steps ahead of the country itself, but usually he's been on the right side of history, or in this case, on our left. Thanks for listening to the Cape Town Podcast. We release new episodes every week. Next week, Ryan and Hannah will return and we'll discuss The Winter Soldier, one of the best and most influential Captain America comics of all time. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod and on Facebook at Cape Town Podcast. You can subscribe wherever you cast your pods. We appreciate every subscription and positive review we get. No need for Thanks Citizen. We will see you next week.